Well, good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, today. Gospel of John, chapter 8, for our reading, for our study, starting in verse 12. John, chapter 8, verse 12. Here, John, the very, in all likelihood, the very best friend of Jesus during his earthly ministry, he writes this in verse 12. John 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from. And where I'm going. But you do not know where I, I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgments, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you, you know neither me nor my Father. If, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away. And you'll seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, well, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Well, I'm sure you've all heard the question about how many people does it take to put in a light bulb. But how many Christians does it take to put in a light bulb? How many Christians does it take to change a bulb? Well, for the Charismatics, only one. Their hands are already in the air. For the Pentecostals, it takes ten, one to change the bulb, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Presbyterians, none. Lights will go on and off at predestined times. For Baptists, at least 15, one to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad and fried chicken. 
For the Episcopalians, it takes three, one to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old light bulb was. Oh, dear. For the Unitarians, we choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need for a light bulb. However, it is if in your own journey you've found that light bulbs work for you, you are invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service in which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. For the Methodists, how many does it take for the Methodists? Undetermined. Whether your light, light is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, or a tulip bulb. Bring a bulb of your choice to the Sunday light service and a covered dish to pass. For the Lutherans, how many does it take? None. Lutherans don't believe in change. Uh, for the Catholics, none. Candles only, please. And for the Amish, what's a light bulb? Okay. We all understand how very important light is to us. As Job wrote about man's desire to find precious stones in the deep, man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. We're all longing to turn the lights on. In terms of the importance of light, also a study in photonics. There's a fun word, photonics. Light and its many applications have revolutionized society through medicine, communications, entertainment, and culture. Light plays a vital role in our daily lives and is an impressive, imperative, cross-cutting discipline of science in the 21st century. It has revolutionized med medicine, opened up international communication via the internet, and continues to be central to linking cultural, economic, political aspects of the global society. We're now hooking up our houses, right, with fiber optics, which is light. Look around you, your phone, computer, TV, all our modern-day technologies made possible largely by photonics. Optics and photonics are the science and application of light. Specifically, photonics generates, controls, and detects particles of light to advance manufacturing, robotics, medical imaging, uh, next generation displays, defense technologies, biometric security, image processing, communications, astronomy, and much more. Light underpins the technologies of daily life from smartphones, laptops, and the internet to medical instruments and LED lighting. All are possible because of photonics. The 21st century will depend as much on photonics as the 20th century depended on electronics to solve the challenges of a modern world. Botanica says, light is a primary tool for perceiving the world and interacting with it for many organisms. Light from the sun warms the earth, drives global weather patterns, and initiates the life-sustaining process of photosynthesis. About 10 to the 22nd joules of solar radiant energy reaches earth each day from the sun. Light's interactions with matter have also helped shape the structure of our universe. NASA says light travels at a constant finite speed of 186,000 miles per second. I want you to think about that. 186,000 miles per second. 
A traveler moving at the speed of light would circumnavigate the equator approximately 7.5 times in one second. Did you hear that? You'd go around the earth 7.5 times in one second. That's faster than Superman, guys. By comparison, a traveler in a jet aircraft moving at ground speed at 500 miles per hour would cross the continental U.S. once in four hours. In a vacuum, visible light travels at the speed of approximately 299,792, 458 meters per second. Light is the fastest that anything in the universe is able to move. For comparison, the speed of sound is only approximately 300 meters per second. This is why during a storm, you always see lightning before you hear the thunder. It's traveling a lot faster. Light is all around us, even when it seems dark. Reflections in rearview mirrors of cars help to keep us safe. Refraction through lenses of eyeglasses or contact lenses can help people see better. The light part of the electromagnetic spectrum, the, the radio waves that let us listen to music are on this spectrum, as are the infrared waves that let us communicate with our TVs. You have to understand, we are surrounded by light. Now, quite frankly, much of it you can't see. So in the whole spectrum, if I were to put the spectrum of light from this wall over to this wall, starting with gamma rays to x-rays to ultraviolet, then to infrared to microwave to radio, there's only a small band right in the middle, right here, that's visible to you. But all the rest of it's still light. That's crazy. You only see a little bit of it all. Fantastic. This is God's handiwork in what he has ordained and created. But as we will see today in our study as Christians, we are called to follow the light of Christ. Because Jesus is the light of the world. Because we don't have to walk in darkness. and Because we can have access to the light of life. We are called to exercise spiritual discernment. In other words, enlightenment. Spiritual discernment helps us expose what is really true. Spiritual discernment helps us determine spiritual sourcing. And spiritual discernment helps us make accurate judgments. And through all this, we are called to know Jesus as we are called to place our faith and trust in him. Through not living for this world and through being dead to sin. Through listening to what he has to say and through doing what pleases him most. Our message series is that you may believe. Today's focus is on Jesus, the light of the world. Throughout the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. In today's passage, we will see the second I am statement in verse 12, where Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. The first I am statement was from John 6.35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But now he says, I am the light of the world. These I am statements come from the Greek, the two words, ego, I, me. Ego, I, me, literally translated, I am. And Jesus uses this phrase referring to himself throughout the Gospel of John. Of course, these I am statements come from the original I am statement found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. 
And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Should be a screen with the I am of that statement. Can you pull that up, please? There it is. I am who I am. There's the Hebrew. It's the tetragrammaton. It reads from the right to the left. It's a yod, a hey, and a vav, and a hey. That's where we get the word Yahweh. Or in another translation, you might get the word Jehovah from it. Quite frankly, there are no vowels in Hebrew. We have no idea how to say God's name. He's protected it from us, hasn't he? So we might not take it in vain. This is the covenant name for God. It is technically a Hebrew verbal. It's a future verbal and could easily be translated, I will be. In other words, God isn't just the I am right here and right now, but he will always be God. These I am statements show up all over the place in John. With the woman at the well, John 4.26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The disciples in the boat in John 6.20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It literally says, I am, fear not. In John 6.35, 48 and 51, I am the bread of life. And now here, John 8.12, I am the light of the world. And then again and again in this book, we see ego I me in John 8, a total of five times in verses 12, verse 18, 24, 25, and 58, throughout this whole chapter. I find it fascinating that we find so many I am statements, so many ego I me's right in the heart of John's gospel as we approach the middle of the book. But today in our study, we'll see four major spiritual truths, along with four objections from the crowd regarding Jesus' teaching followed by two possible responses to what Jesus has to say. But before we study, let's ask God's help. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we encounter your absolutely incredible word here, we ask that you would be our instructor, that you would be our guide and our teacher. Lord, we want to hear from you today, not from the speaker, but from you. What you might say to us in our hearts through addressing your word. So Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us through the power of your spirit and open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have to say. That in the end, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this brief moment this week. In this moment of time, we might be able to hear from you. We pray this in your son's wonderful name. Amen. If you have your sermon notes outlined, here's the first truth. First of all, we are called to follow the light of Christ. We are called to follow the light of Christ. John uh, follows up with Jesus' words with an idea that he had begun way back in John 1, 4 through 5. In him was life, John said, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Beloved, we are all called to follow the light of Christ. Why? Why should we follow the light of Christ? Well, first of all, because Jesus is indeed the light of the world. That's what Jesus said of himself. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Folks, the reality is either that's true or it's not. I would suggest it's true. Jesus got pretty good credentials here. There just isn't any other light out there. Have you noticed? Have you looked? He's it. If you were in a dark tunnel with no light in it whatsoever, and then all of a sudden you began to see some light toward the end of the tunnel, you'd naturally be drawn to that light source. Similarly, 
we've all noticed, we've seen in our world, we're living in an incredibly dark world that seems to be becoming darker by the minute, and yet Christ is the light of the world. He's the only light in this world, and we should be naturally drawn to him. We're called to follow the light of Christ because he's the light of the world. There's no one else to turn to. There's no one else to turn the lights on for us. But secondly, because we don't have to walk in darkness. This is what Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're in the dark right now. But follow him, the lights will come on. You mean I don't have to stay in the darkness? Nope. By implication, to walk in darkness is to walk in the darkness of death. This is where things are pitch black. I know we've got a few Narnia fans out there, those who read the Chronicles of Narnia. I have the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe here. There's an interesting scene that takes place with Edmund. Now, Edmund was the little boy who was in outright rebellion against his other brother and two sisters. And his little sister had gotten into this wardrobe and found herself in Narnia, and she came came back to tell everybody about it, how wonderful it was, and Edmund gave her a super hard time and was making fun of her. But then she went back again, and Edmund caught her. In this particular page, in page 29, in this particular book, it says this, Now the steps she had heard as she got into the wardrobe were those of Edmund. And he came into the room just in time to see Lucy vanishing into the wardrobe. He had once decided to get into the wardrobe himself, not because he thought it a particularly good place to hide, but because he wanted to go on teasing her about her imaginary country. He opened the door, and there were the coats hanging up as usual, and the smell of mothballs and darkness and silence, and no sign of Lucy. She thinks I'm Susan, come to catch her, said Edmund to himself. And so she She's keeping very quiet in at the back of the wardrobe. He jumped in and he shut the door, forgetting that it's a very foolish thing to do. Then he began feeling about for Lucy in the dark. He had expected to find her in a few seconds and was very surprised when he did not. He decided to open the door again and let in some light, but he could not find the door either. He, he didn't like this at all, and, and he began groping wildly in every direction, and he even shouted out, Lucy, Lou, where are you? I know you're here. This is what happens when you're in the dark. <coughs> you lose your sense of security, so you start grabbing for anything to find it. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've tried that. I'll, I'll, try, I'll grab this. no. How about this? No, I can't even find the door. <laughs> we don't have to walk in the darkness. <coughs> How foolish of us. Beloved, we are called to follow the light of Christ. But thirdly here, We're called to follow the light of Christ because we can have access to the light of life. It's his light that brings us life. That's what Jesus said. I'll give you the light of life, he says. What a beautiful contrast to having access to the light of life versus being trapped in utter darkness. Back in May, I shared with you about my grandmother who 
was afraid of the dark as a child. And her mother consoled her and reminded her that it was at bedtime that you don't have to be afraid. Just close your eyes. And you know that Jesus is with you. And wherever Jesus is, there's light. And so for our family, I wasn't afraid of the dark because I'd heard that about my grandmother. We taught our kids the same thing. Our kids just really weren't afraid of the dark because they knew that whenever they were alone, they always knew that Jesus was with them. Why? He's the light of life. We come to this place with Christ in us that we don't have to fear there's peace, there's stability, there's confidence. It is yours for the having. We are called to follow the light of Christ because he can have access to the light of life because we don't have to walk in darkness because he, in fact, is the very light of the world. At this point, those who are listening have an objection. And as I said, we're going to see four of these. In verse 13, it says, so the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Basically, they're accusing him. You're giving false testimony. Basically, the Pharisees were saying, your testimony has, has insufficient validation, Jesus. Therefore, you are giving false testimony, and we don't need to listen to anything you have to say. But Jesus proceeds. He goes on. So secondly, we are called to exercise spiritual discernment. First of all, here, spiritual discernment helps us expose what is really true. In verse 14, Jesus answered, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Hey, you're just talking about yourself here, and you're bearing false witness. Hey, doesn't matter. Even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, guys. Deal with it. And we could ask, well, how do we know that Jesus' testimony is true? How can we know what is true from what anyone has to say? Jesus is proclaiming spiritual truths that need to be spiritually understood. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart and life, and now you have the capacity to appraise things in a spiritual way. You see, the natural man, apart from the Spirit of Christ, has no capacity to be able to discern anything spiritually. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritual discernment helps us to expose what really is true. We can sort out what's true, what's false. But secondly here, spiritual discernment helps us determine spiritual sourcing. What do you mean by that? This is what Jesus goes on to say in verse 14. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. In other words, you guys don't know, you don't know what I'm sourced from. I know where I'm sourced. I'm sourced from God, the Father. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I'm going to go back. <coughs> and we ask, well, why didn't they know where Jesus was from and where he was going? They did not have access to spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment will help you determine 
where people are coming from and where they are ultimately going. Folks, there are only two viewpoints. There are only two kingdoms in this world. I know we could ask, well, man, look at all the different religions. I'd like to remind you, there's only two. There's only the one true God and everything else is a counterfeit. That's it. There's two views. Jesus taught this in Matthew 7. You're either in the narrow gate, you're in the wide gate. Which gate are you in? The narrow gate, few are in it. That's what he said. Few are those who find it. But it leads to life. Wide gate, many people in there. Leads to destruction. This isn't complicated. This isn't hard theology. Jesus talks about two trees, good tree, bad tree. Good tree, you get good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Any questions? This is not hard. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, you can't get bad fruit out of a good tree. You can't get good fruit out of a bad tree. Can't happen. This is God's economy. But for some reason, we have this idea, I'm going to eat of the bad tree. I'm going to get good fruit out of it. No, you won't. You can't. Not possible. But here's the beautiful promise. If you eat of God's good tree, the good fruit will be there. Count on it. Two foundations to live your life on. You're either building your life on the rock of Christ or the shifting sand of this world. You know the song, the wise man built his house on the rock and the rains came coming down. Rains came down, the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm. You know the song, right? Foolish man built his house on the beach. Foolish man built his house on the beach and the rains came coming down. Rains came down, the flood came up. So he got a big bulldozer and he put more sand underneath it. That's not how the song goes, does it? No. By the way, there's going to be that storm that you don't have a big enough bulldozer for it anyway, and great was its fall, it says. Crash. Narrow gate. Good tree. Firm foundation of the rock of Christ. Where are you? There's, only, there's two sources for everything. Everything is sourced in one of these two kingdoms. Every movie you've watched, every song you've heard, you are either encountering God's eternal kingdom or Satan's counterfeit kingdom. I'm so thankful that I had a dad who taught me discernment. Well, how did he do that? Well, my older brother had done one of those Columbia record things. Remember that? You could send in a penny and they'd send you like 30 albums or something. It's crazy. Of course, then you had to pay payments forever to get out of that. And uh, my brother was, he liked rock and roll. And so back in the 70s and and so we, here we have the, the Queen, Night at the Opera album. Oh, dear. And, uh, you know, I'm listening to my, my brother's stuff. I'm in the basement. My dad's downstairs lifting weights like he always does. And I had my drum set downstairs. There it is. That's not it. My other drum set's at home. It's really cool. Um, but anyway, I've got my drum set, and I've got Queen on. I'm listening to it. And here's what my dad didn't say. Turn that rocket off, which, by the way, he could say that in different contexts. But he didn't. And of course, Bohemian Rhapsody's on. I said, Dan, check this out, listen to it. And I've got the album, the album jacket right there. And my dad just talks to me about it. It's like, what do you think that guy's talking about? I said, I don't know, but it's cool, isn't it, Dad? And this is what my dad said. Without, he says, you know what? It sounds like this guy's in hell. I'm like, really? I grabbed the album jacket and started reading the words. Beelzebub, 
has a devil set aside for me? For me? Dad, you're right. This guy's in hell. This is horrible. I, I, from that point on, I always read the lyrics and I found out what sourcing it was from. Where was it from? I realized I can't listen to this stuff. I'm not going to encounter that. I'm, I'm not on the highway to hell. I'm not listening to that. I'm turning it off. You're called to exercise spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment helps us expose what's really true. Spiritual discernment helps us determine spiritual sourcing. Thirdly, spiritual discernment helps us make accurate judgments. In verse 15, Jesus goes on, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yeah, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. You see, in the flesh, that is our, our, our own strength apart from God. We have no ability to evaluate things. In our own strength, apart from God, we can't sort it out. We can't tell the difference between what's right and wrong anymore. We can't tell the difference between what are good intentions or evil intentions or that which is honorable or dishonorable. We don't understand holy affection versus unholy affections, scriptural intent or unscriptural intent, godly character versus ungodly character, Christ-like determinations versus demonic. This is huge. Spiritual discernment helps us make accurate judgments Jesus says, you're judging according to the flesh. Oh, that we would not judge according to the flesh, that we'd have spiritual capacity to appraise things spiritually. Beloved, we are called to exercise spiritual discernment. And now objection two shows up. Verse 19, the crowd's becoming frustrated, concerned, annoyed, they said to him, therefore, well, where is your father? You keep talking about your father. Where is your father? Imagine him saying it kind of snarky, right? Is snarkily, is snarkily a word? I don't know. Kind of a snarkily way. Where is your father, Jesus? At this point with this question, in all likelihood, this is a huge slander. Why? This will be even made more clear later in this chapter. Many of these people knew about Jesus' background from Nazareth regarding the controversy involving Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary. Hey, where is your dad, pal? Along with a surprise pregnancy for his mother, Mary. Where is your father? Jesus responds, thirdly, we are called to know Jesus. Do you know him this morning? Jesus responds to this second objection. You know neither me nor my father. You don't even know who I am. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. There are many passages in scripture that describe what it means for us to know God 
If you want to know God, then you need to know Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, then you need to put your faith and trust in him. If you want to put your faith and trust in him, then you need to follow him. If you want to follow him, then you will need to be able to be all about what he says. 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are you getting the idea here? 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul says. Peter writes, this won't be on the screen, but listen close. In 2 Peter 1, 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, there it is, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfaithful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Are you hearing this? There are those who I've, I've heard say, well, well, I know, I know him. And then they go and live in rebellion. I'm like, I don't think you do. Because if you did know him, you'd be falling all over yourself trying to find a way to do what he wants you to do. If you aren't keeping his commandments, then perhaps you really don't know him or love him. At which point we see objection three. Jesus, you're just confusing us. In verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going? I cannot come. What's he talking about? You lost me. But Jesus responds again with our fourth truth. Beloved, we are called to place our faith and trust in Jesus. How so? We're called to place our faith and trust in Jesus through not living for this world. He said to them, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Beloved, we need, we shouldn't be living for this world. He makes a profound and yet simple assessment. You're from below. Notice the beautiful parallelism here in this passage. You are from below, you are of this world, versus I am from above, I am not of this world. By way of paraphrase here, you guys clearly don't get it. And what you are saying is sourced from the world and ultimately from the pit of hell. We need to make sure that we are not living for this world. We need to live only for him. It's one thing to be a ship upon the waters of the ocean. It's another thing to let the water of the ocean into our ship. If we aren't careful, we will be swamped with the world and eventually we'll be sunk. Beloved, we are called to place our faith and trust in Jesus through not living for this world, but rather through being dead to sin. Verse 24, listen to what he says. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe, there it is, place your faith and trust in him, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Twice he says it. You've got, to, you've got a problem. You're going to die in your sins unless you believe in me. 
which means we need to be dead to sin. As you sit there right in that seat right now, this moment, you are either dead in your sins or you are dead to sin. Jesus calls us to be dead to sin and ultimately life to Christ. Romans 6, 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You got two options. You're either sitting there dead in your sins or you're sitting there dead to sins. What sin has a stranglehold on you this morning that's trying to kill you? Throughout Scripture, we see this concept of putting off and putting on putting off self, putting on Christ. Paul writes in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So put off anger and put on love. Put off greed and put on charity. Put off gambling and put on stewardship. Put off substance abuse and put on the spirit of Christ. Put off adultery and put on sexual purity. Put off conflict and put on peace. Put off bitterness and hatred and put on forgiveness and reconciliation. And now the people are really incensed. Subjection four. In verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? We don't even know who you are, man. Jesus goes on. Thirdly here, how else are we to place our faith and trust in him through listening to what he has to say? Jesus said to them, they just said, who are you? He goes, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Aren't you listening? I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Notice all the words associated with communication here. It's what I've been telling you all along. I have so much to say. I declare to the world these things. Again, it's one thing to hear what Jesus has to say. It's another thing to actually do what he says. We need to be doers of the word and not just hearers, according to James 1. If we're not, we're deceiving ourselves. At which point they respond. The first response here, in verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. We don't get it. We don't understand. But lastly here, Jesus goes on, where we are called to put our faith and trust in Jesus through doing what pleases him. Notice Jesus' perspective in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. To demonstrate your faith and trust in Christ, are you about doing what pleases Him? 
just as Jesus always did what was pleasing to his heavenly Father, we need to do the same. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And we see the final response here. Finally, after this long dialogue, four objections. Finally, verse 30, as he was saying these things, did you see it? Many believed in him. Oh, praise God. We are here as a result of those who believe. So what are your objections to Christ? Maybe you're saying of him, well, you're giving false testimony, or you're illegitimate, or you're confusing, and I don't even know who you are. Maybe your response is, I don't understand. The call to you this morning is for you to believe. And this is where we see the power of light, because it's the power of light that brings understanding it brings enlightenment to the truth of these matters. Jesus is indeed the light of the world. I was grading some papers from some Cornerstone students this week. And uh, the topic of light and dark and Christ came up. And at one point, one student said this one quote, and it just kind of grabbed me. I will share it with you. This is what she wrote. I will not be more impressed with the darkness than the glory and majesty of God. Wow. It's from a kid in a class. And sometimes we get overwhelmed by the darkness and we just, we're so impressed. Oh, it's so dark. And we lose sight of the light of his glory and his majesty. Well, this is where we need to end up. We are called to follow the light of Christ. We are called to exercise spiritual discernment. We're called to know him. Do you know him this morning? We're called to place our trust, our faith in him. Would you please stand as we close? Oh, God, may we not be enamored by the darkness or overwhelmed by it. Lord, these things that we're talking about today are not just light and dark, they're life and death because your light brings life not only to this world as physically but spiritually to all of us. Lord, it's my prayer that those who are before me would be enlightened, they'd be encouraged, strengthened in their faith and their convictions that they might walk with you in reality, not just hearing these things but doing them. May we demonstrate our love for you. May we demonstrate our knowledge of you through our obedience. That you are, you're mine. <laughs> you're my savior. You're my redeemer. You're my friend. And Lord, may we walk accordingly, not just in this moment, but may we walk accordingly in an ongoing way, demonstrating who we belong to. 
So Lord, help us to keep water out of our boat. Help us to keep the lights on. Staying close to where you are. Knowing full well that wherever you are, it's always light. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. May we walk in them this day. We want to give you all the praise for it. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for coming. Have a fantastic week.